Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Did you know that the average human lifespan is absurdly, insultingly brief? Assuming you live to be 80, just assume that, you just have over 4,000 weeks, which if you put that into real grand perspective is not a long time, right? And that's if we end up living to the age of 80. Nobody needs telling there's not enough time. We're obsessed with our lengthening to-do list, our overfilled inboxes, our work-life balancing in quotation marks, that is, because we're all trying to achieve a work-life balance here. But many of us, including myself here, can't really do that. Or we try to do that as best as we possibly can. Uh, Somehow not really meeting the mark of what really is work-life balance. And we have this ceaseless battle against negative distractions. And we have this deluge of advice on becoming more productive and efficient and more life hacks in quotation mark to optimize our days. And such techniques often end up making things worse, don't they? The sense of anxious hurry grows more intense and still the most meaningful parts of life seem to lie just beyond the horizon. Still, we rarely make the connection between our daily struggles with time and the ultimate time management problem, the challenge of how best to use our 4,000 weeks, considering that we do end up with 4,000 weeks. Drawing on the insights of both ancient and contemporary philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers, my guest today, the awesome Oliver Berkman, delivers an entertaining, humorous, practical, and ultimately profound guide to time and time management in his new book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. 
rejecting the futile modern fixation on getting everything done, 4,000 Weeks introduces readers, you guys, the tools for constructing a meaningful life by embracing finitude, showing how many of the unhelpful ways we've come to think about time aren't inescapable, unchanging truths, but choices we've made as individuals and as a society and that we can do things very differently. Oliver Berkman is uh, all around a fascinating human being, really, really loved speaking to him, but he's he's a feature writer for The Guardian. He is a winner of the Foreign Press Association's Young Journalist of the Year Award, and he has been shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. He wrote the popular weekly column on psychology. This column will change your life. And he is reported for New York, London, and Washington, uh, uh, D.C. His books include 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which you can go and get a copy of right now. I love the book, Changed My Whole Perspective on Time in General. Not kidding. It is a brilliant read and definitely go and get a copy of it. His other book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Uh, And uh, Oliver currently lives in London. Uh, And this was such a good conversation that I know it's going to help many, many of you. I've had quite a few conversations with people about time management, but none like this. And I think that it's going to help so many of you. So go and get a copy of Oliver's book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I think you'll love it. Help support Oliver and his incredible message uh, out there in the world. Also, don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. We are almost getting closer and closer to the launch date, September 27th, which is pretty much just around the corner, really. I'm very, very, very excited about it. But uh, we'd love for you guys to go and get a copy. So pre-order if you can. Love for you guys to do that. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we learn more about uh, how we can better manage our 4,000 weeks, considering we do have 4,000 weeks, as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Oliver Berkman. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. You're more than welcome anytime, my friend. I know we're going to have a fantastic conversation because this is a topic that I love talking about. Now, it is currently, I believe, 8.05 a.m. in London and it is 5.05 p.m. here in Sydney, Australia on the same day. Is it Sunday for you? It is. I'm actually quite a way outside London, but in exactly the same time zone as London. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that is pretty cool. I don't know about you guys, the time difference there, because <laughs> we're talking about time. I think it's pretty yeah. cool. But um, yeah, anyway, my friend, thank you so much for, for being here. My very first question for you is a question that I love asking all my guests at the very start, which is what does success look like for you? Wow. Could really answer that on like a kind of three seconds, superficial level, I'll talk about it for multiple hours. Um, I think if I'm answering that with my sort of best self, as it were, not not what I might have pursued as success for long stretches of my life, but what I think I, what I'm happiest about when I'm, when I'm doing it is, it is like, a, it's defined for me as a kind of a full state of engagement with life. So it is 
being the sort of person who is showing up in a, in a very fundamental and wholehearted way for your experience and your relationships and all the rest of it. And so often, this is the time aspect keeping in, keep, uh, creeping in. So often I think that what happens is um, because of the other ideas we have about success, we are situating them totally in the future where we're totally getting into that mindset of um, this is my life is going to be good in the way that I want it to be good, but it's going to be not now. It's going to be sometime soon. Once I've kind of got my life in order, sorted everything out, mastered my time. And my experience has been that chasing that kind of success uh, leads to failure because it, you just miss your life, right? You end up, you end up not being, being present for the actual alarmingly short amount of time that you get. There's so many people out there that are, I guess, really fascinated or obsessed with time or time management. And I guess it's more of a, a curious question for me to, to ask you. We'll see how we go with this one. Do we use time or does time use us? <laughs> I mean, that's a great, it's a great question. Not because I think there's like one answer to it, <laughs> but because I think it, it really throws something into perspective that it's hard to see, right? Which is usually hard to see, which is that there is something kind of weird about this idea of time as something that you use. Like mm. it's so second nature to us. Um, okay, I've got this many hours, how am I going to use them? Um, but it defines time as this thing that is separate from us. It says there's me and then there's time and I've got to use this resource that I've been given uh, as wisely as I can. And one of the arguments I make in my book is that this, if you go all in on that viewpoint, it leads to all sorts of unnecessary kind of stress and anxiety and not doing spending your time in the way you'd like because it's actually kind of not true when you really think about it we don't have time you never have anything more than the present moment i i might expect to get a few hours later on today as i do to to do some certain specific things around the house but i might not anything might happen you know and so there's actually something very weird about this notion that time is ours to use. Uh, I think it's really useful to be able to sort of step away from that a little bit and just think about maybe the real answer to your question is neither time is something that we are. I think that's a really useful framing as well. None of these is the only truth, but the idea that you are a little stretch of time, I find to be a really powerful one because it, it puts you back into this position of like, okay, it's not about trying to become more and more and more efficient or getting to some place in the future where everything is fully streamlined and optimized and organized. It is about entering into this little bit of time that, that, that we have or that we are. It makes me think, having you having heard you say that, it kind of makes me think that time is unlimited. It's it's just there, but it's it outlasts us. So that right. we are limited. And I've always like thought about you know that very notion here on earth that is if if people believe in that like the limitation of being here on earth like that is that can make a lot of people wonder why why aren't we unlimited just like time right we have this kind of yearning to be limitless and to have no bound to have no finite stop to our time mm -hmm. and 
you know, there's all sorts of interesting ways in which religious traditions have engaged with that idea, including the idea that maybe we are limitless in some in some sense. But for now, for either for secular people or just for all of us in the here and now, while we're on Earth, there is this um, fundamental mismatch between what we are capable of conceiving, which is infinite time and limitless cool things to do or demands and obligations to feel or whatever it is, you know, that, that whole world is infinite. And then we are this incredibly finite creature that can only do a little bit of it. So I guess in a way that book 4,000 weeks is all ultimately about managing this mismatch and finding meaning in that mismatch rather than what I think a lot of like, or at least a lot of conventional time management advice pushes us to do, which is to keep on believing that we're somehow going to solve that mismatch yeah. and we're not, and that's fine, but, but you can go a long way wrong by thinking that next week or next month, you'll finally be capable of doing everything and meeting every demand and, and all the rest of it. How does, I know you explain this better in your book, but how does choice help us control our own time or the time conundrum a little bit better? Well, I think the way to think about this is that we're already choosing anyway, right? And this is a, so that gets a little bit philosophical, but I hope it, I hope I can sort of convey this in, a, in an immediate sense. Every time, because you're finite, every decision you make to spend time doing something is a choice and an important choice with, with high stakes because um, you're, already, you're automatically deciding not to do a whole bunch of other things instead. And your time in the meanwhile is running out. So if you did live forever, choices would be, it would almost not quite count to call them choices because anything you decided to do, you could do the other thing next and so on forever. I think that would be a terrible life in certain ways, but you wouldn't have to choose. Instead, we all always are choosing anyway. And what I write about in the book is the importance of what I and other people have called, it's not original to me, uh, choosing to choose, which is doing this choosing in a conscious way, realizing that you're doing it, realizing that you have to always be doing it. And as a result of that, making some, some wiser choices, because I, I think it does get, it is, it is, it is preferable in a sort of short term psychological way to live in that world of like, I've got all the time in the world, I can do anything I want. Um, I don't need to make these tough choices. It's uncomfortable to, to make the sacrifice, to consciously make the sacrifices that are involved in having limited time. But it's really freeing to see that, like, this is not optional. This is like, we're doing it all the time anyway. So, so you can sort of completely give up you have my permission. You have the you have the world's permission to like completely give up the idea of uh, executing on every single ambition you might possibly come up with for your life, or never disappointing anybody at all in your entire life, never dropping a single ball. Um, and it, that's precisely the the precondition, I think, for then doing meaningful, exciting, interesting, remarkable things with your with your life. It's that it starts from the recognition that. It's a waste of time and energy to be trying to get your arms around it all. And that all you need to do is pick a few things that clearly matter to you and, and do them instead. Let me come back to the idea of wasted time because I think that is a, a fascinating topic when it comes down to talking about time. But I wanted to ask you, 
because you mentioned, you know, doing the things that you love. And I'm curious, what are some of the things that you love doing with your time? They sort of fall into two buckets for me. Um, I am really lucky to um, enjoy the work that I do so much. So, um, you know, getting to sort of explore the ideas that matter to me and for it also to be my job is just seems bizarre. Like it, it shouldn't, shouldn't be so, uh, shouldn't be so, uh, agreeable, but it is, that's wonderful. And then the other thing, I suppose the other bucket is things that I, I call in the, I refer to in the book as atelic activities. This is a word that used by the philosopher Kieran Satya. things that you do not for some place that they're taking you, but, or, or that they're leading, but for the benefit of the activity itself. Now there's an element of that to my work. Absolutely. I love talking about writing about thinking, reading about these sorts of ideas, but they are almost always, that almost always comes with some kind of outcome. I'm trying to write the article. I'm trying to come up with the idea for uh, the book, you know, whatever it is, I'm trying to sell copies of the book. You know, there's always these, there's always these outcomes. And if you're not careful, those things can, those outcomes can sort of detract from the, from the value of the experience because it just becomes a kind of a grind towards the goal. Um, that is obviously not true of something else that I would say I love doing now that we live in the North York Moors in Northern England, which is uh, hiking, right? I mean, hiking is a classic example of this a kind of atelic activity because it would just make no sense to be like, okay, I'm trying to get to a point where I've done all the hiking that I need to do or, um, you know, yeah, maybe you get fit. Maybe you want to sort of, some people try to sort of uh, get a certain number of summits under their belt. There's all sorts of ways you can turn hiking into that. But for me, it's just very much a, a case of like, no, this is good now. And being with, I think at its best parenting is like that as well. My being with my five-year-old son, the quality of that experience is vastly higher when I'm not trying to get him out of the door in time to get to school or, um, or when I'm not anxiously thinking in my head about like how much screen time is enough is too much and all that stuff. It's much, much better when that can just be something you you're doing with that moment. Mm. You have a bucket list. I don't, I, I'm not sure if I've ever, I, you mean like a list of places you want to go, things you want? I mean, I sort of, on some level, I've, I've always got a list of, I don't think of it as a bucket list. No, I don't think I have a, no, it's a strange, I'm, I'm, I don't know why that question caused me so much, um, so much pause. Um, I try hard in my regular sort of task management system, my to-do lists and my mm. sort of schedule and that I try to, I try to make sure that there's, plenty of stuff in there that I'm looking forward to, because I think that is important to stay motivated. And I think it's a good sign that the thing you're looking forward to doing is a meaningful thing if, if it if it excites you. But I always think that bucket lists, the, what, what they seem to mean to me is this kind of list of things that probably at some other time you're going to do when you have the time for them. Uh, and they're not part of your life right now. Maybe that's not how pe other people use that phrase, but to me it is. And I want to not do that, that deferring. I want to not carry on believing that in two decades time, this time is arriving when all I'll do is, is these, these other things, because I think that risks never, never doing any of them. 
I don't know if you've seen the movie The Bugger List um, with Jack Nicholson. I haven't actually. I know of it. Morgan Freeman. I mean, when I watched that movie, uh, I think what made me like pause a lot was the fact that these guys had lived their life so much so and it kind of felt like they had wasted a lot of their time just living this existence trying to get by. Uh, Like you had one person that was... Uh, working extremely hard just to make ends meet. And he had another person that worked really hard too. And then he became like a multimillionaire. And it kind of felt like both people were wasting their time just on different levels. Yeah. And um, when they finally got, I don't want to spoil the whole movie for them, but when they decided, they they met together, they decided, you know what, I'm going to, you know, change this. I think the, the most impactful thing for me watching it was, you know, that very thing, how am I using my time that is going to make me happy as well as bring me joy and that is going to create a more fulfilling and meaningful life for me. Like this idea of creating a list, I think it's nice, but I also don't want to be limited to the list because then I might, I might think about, I might not, I might forget something um, and before I can write it down or, I might actually think of something much, much later on in my life and then go and do that. If that makes sense at all, like there's all these things I could do, but I I guess living in the moment, the present moment, being able to do it then is more impacting than just waiting to be able to do something because then I might not actually do it. I think that goes back to your point. No, I think absolutely that's right. And I think another element of it is that, and this is a sort of insight that you get in sort of Eastern philosophies, Buddhism and traditions like that, that there's also something about meaningfulness or joy in experience that is kind of <clears throat> not dependent on the content of it. So you don't want to, you don't want to push this point too far. I know that, you know, it's not, it, it, there are people in terrible circumstances in the world and they are suffering, but there is a sense in which we get caught up in this idea that in order to experience joy or meaning, I'll need to go and do a specific thing. When in fact, it can often be how you relate to your experience that um, that is the key to whether it's fulfilling or not. So to pick a sort of very common mundane example that gets used in Buddhism and meditation circles, right? It is possible to find deep absorption and pleasure in an activity like washing the dishes if you get to that stage of having being able to hold your attention on it and being able to enter into the experience of it. Doesn't mean it's not also great to do more sort of you know, superficially more interesting things uh, doesn't mean it's fine that we live in a society where some people have to work as dishwashers who would rather be working as um, as something else. But it does mean that maybe we shouldn't go all in on this notion that 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 joy is going to be found by lining up our preferences for how we spend our time with uh the specific ways in which we're spending our time and you know almost everyone has this experience i i think uh, well on both both sides of this coin right one is planning some something that's meant to be really special in your life or your family's life or something and uh, with your friends going and doing it and feeling the sense of anticlimax that it wasn't this kind of amazing thing it was supposed to be and then on the flip side of that a day spent you know with no particular plans, doing something rather mundane, um, running errands, 
and just sort of reflecting at the end of it that it would turn out to be a weirdly enjoyable day. Um, and I think the, both of those ex things are to do with the fact that actually it, it is at least partly to do with the, the way you're relating to your experience as opposed to the content of your experience that, that, that defines how it, how it feels. Yeah. What are some ancient pieces of wisdom or advice that you found while researching this book about time or when it comes down to time and how does it stack up or does it stack up to modern advice when it comes to, to time management? I mean, I guess the best way to talk about that is just to go all in on the, the fundamental idea and then we can dive off in different directions if you want, but like, which is how to think about limits, right? How to think about being limited, both in terms of the amount of time we get, the most obvious thing, but also in terms of our control over that time, our knowledge of the future, right? You, you, not only do you only get a small amount of time, but you don't know exactly how long it's going to be. You only know that it's going to be short. And you don't know that it's going to unfold the way that you want it to unfold. And every time you make a choice, um, to do something, to launch some project, to engage in a relationship, to travel somewhere, anything, you can't know that it's going to turn out to have been a good choice. And actually, you'll never know in some sense, right? Because there aren't parallel, uh, there aren't parallel lives of yours to compare it to. And that situation of being limited just seems to me it's completely built in. You know, maybe mm. people in Silicon Valley will find a way to extend our lives by 100 years. Even then, it'll still be uh, pretty limited by uh, most um, reference points. And I think that a lot of ancient wisdom and especially things that come out of various religious traditions has to do with how you reconcile yourself to that state of affairs and how actually embracing limitations, those kinds of limitations, I'm not talking about like self-limiting beliefs that you're no good or something, but, but the real built-in limitations of being human, embracing them is the precondition for living meaningfully and accomplishing cool things and making a difference and all the rest of it. Whereas I think a lot of, not all of it at all, but a lot of sort of bad advice on productivity, time management that we encounter today it doesn't explicitly say you can transcend your limitations and become superhuman, usually, although it does occasionally, but it but it's premised on this notion that like there won't there doesn't need to be sacrifice involved in in having an authentic relationship with time. That um that the answer is to try to pack more and more and more things into the same amount of time through efficiency and optimization and uh you know outsourcing and delegating all the all the least important things, so that you will be able to do everything that matters to you. And you won't have to do all the tedious stuff that doesn't matter to you. But I think what people have understood in the longer tradition, older traditions is, no, there's more stuff to do that matters to you than you'll get to do, right? Even that, even that you don't get to sort of find a, a secret backdoor to the, to the human condition. It's still the case that, um, there's this sort of, yeah, I mean, I think the word for it is it's tragic, right? But not in a kind of melodramatic way. It's, it's, this, it's this sort of tragic view of life that says, here we are, we're put into the situation and to make it as exciting and meaningful and accomplished and pleasurable as we can, we actually have to face up to not just all the things we want to do and can do, but all the things we'll never get to do. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of a bummer, but also it's reality. And there's something very invigorating 
about stopping avoiding the truth like that, I think. Maybe not for everybody. <laughs> yeah, 100%, man. You mentioned efficiency a few times. And I'm, I'm curious personally, like is the goal to become more efficient with our time? Because it feels like what we have been taught is the quicker we are and the more things we get done, the better we will be the more efficient you feel about yourself and, and therefore the more rewards that you get. Is that a trapping notion or a trapping idea? I think it can be. I always, I, I've gone so all in on being against efficiency that now I feel an urge to sort of qualify my <laughs> remarks. So yeah, look, as an example I've given before, if you get up in the morning and it takes you an hour to find your clothes that you want to wear for the day, like there's an inefficiency in your routine that you should address. And I'm definitely still someone who tries to find more efficient ways of doing all sorts of things. I think that the problem as always with these kinds of things is not a given technique, you know, not a given efficiency method or something, but why you're doing it and like the spirit in which you're doing it. And if what you're doing, and I think this is true of a lot of the people who are sort of deeply into the kind of self-optimization uh, movement uh, are doing, is that they they are pursuing some kind of, they do think it's going to like save them or something. They think it's going to, um, they think, or maybe they haven't explicitly acknowledged this, but they think that they're getting to a point where through all this efficiency, uh, a certain kind of discomfort is going to be eliminated from their lives or a certain kind of vulnerability or emotional vulnerability or something is not going to be there anymore or certain kind of hard choice um, to do one thing instead of another is going to be avoided. And that's the thing that is the problem, right? And I think that if you, if you go all into efficiency like that, you end up living permanently for the future, right? It's this idea that um, soon you're going to get to this plateau of of efficiency and optimization where everything is just smooth sailing now until the end of your life. Uh, and I think that a lot of productivity advice keeps people locked into that mindset. They're thinking, um, okay, I'm not there yet. Right now I've got too many emails and I'm behind and I've missed some deadlines, but, but if I really give it one more push and finally implement this really cool system, like peace and plenty will prevail. And, and that is the problem. So it's pursuing efficiency techniques for that that reason that is the problem because i think what we actually have to do is face the facts that um you know you're never getting on top of everything you're never uh finding a way you'll never find a way to make time for all the things that feel like they matter and efficiency is just a sort of deceptive uh distraction if you if you think that it's going to take you there but look once you can get a bit more into this limit embracing mindset which i think i am a bit more in now than i used to be um yeah, it's not wrong to try to, you know, reorganize your kitchen so that it takes you 20 minutes to make dinner instead of an hour and a half. That, that's fine. That's great. If you don't want to be spending your life cooking, you'd rather be doing something else with it, then absolutely um, find the inefficiencies and, and get rid of them. I think, and this is what I've been taught for a long period of time. I feel like I am, once again, wasting time if I'm not using every second of it that I have. Right. Day. And it, that I guess that feeling of not being productive in quotation marks, it kind of knocks me a little bit and I need to change that mindset. 
<laughs> because you talk well, about the importance of patience in your book, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's a really good point that I didn't really emphasize in what I just said then, that, that I guess I mentioned it briefly. Efficiency and all lots of these conventional ways of thinking about using time, they, they, they make this mindset more acute. It's like you're conscious, constantly self-consciously asking of a given moment or an hour or a day, like, am I using it well enough for my future purposes? Um, because wasting in that, in that sense, of the word wasting, it, it, it implies the future, right? It's wasting relative to some goal you're trying to, to reach. And, um, obviously getting through more stuff more quickly is a good way to sort of combat that, that emotion. But, but the reason that I stress the importance of patience in the book is that I think patience ultimately these days, especially in our sort of accelerated society is just about slowing down to the speed that things really need in order to do them. And that includes just like living your life. Maybe what you need is an hour's rest. And anyone who's sort of driven and immersed in the ethos of our society at the moment will think that that is wasting time because, um, you know, it, it doesn't. It, its connection to these future goals is is less clear. But actually, like I argue in the book, I think if you really think about it, you get to this strange paradoxical conclusion that um, the only way to really spend time well is to waste it. If if by wasting you mean uh, not keeping most of your attention on the future place that you're headed to, but actually putting most of it into this moment. Because, you know, the things that we tend to define as idleness, if you think about them, they kind of are by definition, those things that don't lead anywhere. Um, so it's idleness, apparently, to sort of, I don't know, there's certain kinds of books or certain kind of shows you could watch, say, where you'd say you were wasting time. What do you mean? I think what you mean is they're not, they're not self-improving somehow. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, there's nothing wrong with self-improvement, but if all you're always doing is improving for some future point that you never get to, that seems like you've missed the point in a way. If you really think even deeper about it, it's kind of like well, when you go to sleep, do you see that as wasted time? Because you're not really doing anything except you're <clears throat> sleeping, you're resting. Right. So if you think right. that every inch of time should be used in some way, shape or form that is going to be quite productive, then you should take sleeping off the table because you spend at least eight hours of it. So I guess that, yeah, it's a matter of, that's the way I think of it at least. Yeah. I was just going to say, or the other thing that happens and we have totally seen this happen in the last sort of decade or so is that, um, is that people start to emphasize valuing sleep, for other reasons, right? So, so sleep starts to become, and it is now, right? Sleep is like a really cool thing to do in certain, in certain sort of personal development circles, because it's recognized that you need it in order to be uh, alert and productive and all the rest of it. But like, yeah, what about what about the benefit of sleeping just because like dreaming is fun to do? I mean, or like snuggling down into your cozy bed is fun to do, not because it's going to make you a better producer, even though it will, just to be clear, but, but like, maybe that's not the only reason to, um, to want to find enjoyment in it. Yeah. I don't want to wake up when I'm having a great dream. 
<laughs> that's in all honesty. But then I just end up waking yeah. up and I'm like, damn it, I can't remember the, the good dream that I was having. I'm like, take me back, please. Time travel. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah, which which kind of brings me to another curious question for you, Oliver. If you did have if time travel was to exist and you were to travel back in time to any decade or any time period, which time period would you want to travel back to and why? Uh, I immediately want to like sort of add caveats to this. This is time travel where I can go and experience something and then immediately leave and come back to the modern world. Or am I, am I there for good? You can travel there for as long as you want. Right. I think then I would be, personally, I would be extremely interested to visit sort of basically anywhere in pre-industrial Europe, but I think about sort of the medieval period and why not around here in Yorkshire, times when, you know, this is why, this is why the get out clause is so important because like life was terrible for medieval for medieval people, right? You know, you need some dental work doing. You do not want to have to remain in um, in the medieval period. Uh, but as I discuss in the book, I think there's lots of reason to believe that these time problems that have made like weighed on me so much in my life and that are so interesting to me didn't really exist for for those people because they didn't relate to time in this in this sense of it being a resource that they had to make the most of. I think that because their lives were so governed by natural rhythms, because you just had to like milk the cows when the cows needed milking, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't batch that in a, in a sort of hyper-efficient way or anything. Um, and because certain kinds of communal and religious traditions were so entrenched, there would have been a sort of a depth to experience that we have all, I think we all do know, but we get it too rarely. And I think it would have been present. I think, there's reason to believe this, right? That, that they would have been would have been present most or all of the time for mm. those people. So it's kind of totally this kind of there's a I think it's an Italian proverb that translates as uh, we were better off when things were worse, <laughs> and um, and there's an element of that in my wanting to go back to th that time because as I say, like almost everything about the quality of life uh, was awful. And I would not want to remain there on a long-term basis. But I think that to taste that different kind of relationship to time and reality would be extremely illuminating. And to be able to bring that back into a world obsessed by efficiency and productivity would be uh, would be very helpful. Plus, it would be more. Plus, I'd be happier then to like you know go to a 21st century dentist, knowing knowing what I'd seen in the in the. Terrible medieval times. Dentistry and optical, 100%. <laughs> both, both of those things are, are, are godsends. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in, in part of me wants to go back to the same period just because of lack of technology. The, the mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a crucial part of this too. Yeah, yeah. And then the other part of me wants to sort of have the technology in that period of time to make things a lot better, <laughs> but then again, it kind of think it makes me think. Well, have we made it better for our our uses of time if we're on social media? Maybe I'll just have the technology, but with no social media. How about that? Like, I think that would be the the, the fix. <laughs> You're right. Go back in time and just tweak things enough that 
that social yeah. media platforms never never come to be. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, that one little adjustment I think will make a huge difference in the world. Who knows? <laughs> completely wrong. Uh, that's just my imagination running a little bit wild there. But um, <laughs> Oliver, man, I want to I want to give uh, my audience a little bit of a picture on the front cover. This is the I think is this the UK or the Australian version? This might be the UK. Uh, it's the UK jacket design, but if that is a paperback, which I think it is, right? It then is, obviously yeah. that is the that is the um, Australian New Zealand uh, edition of the of the book. So it's the it's the UK art for the hardback, but it went direct goes direct to paperback because you have a fascinating, endlessly fascinating book market that I don't quite understand where basically hardback books don't exist. So I know um, I don't get it. I don't get it, Oliver. Thank you. <laughs> Someone else like you can find a very select few hardcover yeah. books and I'm like, come on, hardcover is where it's at. But, and I think Australians are just cheap. They want the, <laughs> maybe there's another. <laughs> but the reason why I held it up for people uh, is I wanted them to see it if they're watching the video or even on the audio version, you've got a, a chair, a long chair with a lake, and then you've got the the mountain view, and it's quite serene. And I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you, what was the, did you have any involvement with the cover or what was the the purpose for this design? It's a fact, I really like to talk about this question because the, um, if anyone's super interested and goes to my website or to anywhere else where the book is for sale, you can see that the the US cover is very different mm. um, and the Canadian cover is different again. And now that a few foreign language editions are being published, I see like new things being tried all the time. Yeah, I do have input. I think it's um, it, it's interesting in the, in the contract when you sign one to have a book published, um, the author has like ultimately total rights over the insides of the book, but absolutely not total rights over the jacket art. So as it happens, I love all the jacket designs for this book. Um, but if I had really hated them and the publisher had wanted to pick a fight, it would have been there. It would have been their say, not, not mine. Um, so that picture, uh, is, um, it's a view in, uh, Queenstown, New Zealand, I think. So, um, from my vantage point, that counts as your part of the world, but I'm well aware that it's actually an enormously it's just long, across the lake, you know, yeah, an enormous distance away. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. Um, and I think that it was chosen. I mean, it's interesting to me. It says something interesting culturally. I think that the the, the I think the attempt, the, the the promise that maybe the cover seeks to make to a British and to a uh, Australian and New Zealand audiences is something to do with like being able to relax and feel the open spaciousness of um, uh, sort of being present in the moment. The US cover, which in a totally different way, I absolutely adore as well, is text-based and has a little picture of um, a man, presum presumptively sort of Atlas holding up the world, except he's holding up um, a clock. And it, and it looks like a business book, you know, it looks like a book that seems to, that seems to promise um, you know, if you read this, you'll, you might become more productive. And I think both of those are true, right? I mean, I think that's sort of the point of my message is that I'm not, this isn't a book about like, oh, just be a slacker. It's a book about how actually, um, taking a more relaxed attitude to time and being more productive in a meaningful sense are 
go together, right? They're not they're not opposed at all. But it, it is intriguing to me that um, you know it was felt that w- w- one way was the way to attract Americans, and the other was the way to attract um, you know UK Commonwealth. <laughs> the more, vis- uh, the more visual approach, I like right. it because. What goes through my mind when I first saw it was you have, I see this, the 4,000 weeks, and that's a bit confronting. And then you got, hey, this nice serene picture. It's like, relax, yeah. take a deep breath in. It's mm. going to be okay. Time and how to use it. Fantastic. Let's dive in. <laughs> that's the way my brain yeah. works when I saw it. Um, oh, I'm glad. No, I mean, I think, right, the, the, the title I'm aware, the title is a risk, right? Because when people figure out what the title's about, I think there is totally a risk that they'll be like, that's terrifying and depressing. So obviously I don't want to have anything to do with a book that has that message in it. And I'm certainly not going to pay any money for uh, to own such a book. Whereas of course, I do think that the message of reading the book is that like, that is a good sort of startling slap in the face, but, but what follows from that, I think is not at all right. Cause is it, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but there's this other way of thinking about life is short, right. Which is not that it's a cause of despair, but that it's quite high stress because now you've got to like live an amazing life and spend every weekend doing exciting hobbies and, and definitely quit your job to go into business on your own and definitely do this. And and like, that can be the right set of choices for somebody for, for sure. But I'm concerned to suggest that actually that kind of high stress approach to using your limited time, that's not necessary either. This can be a sort of deeply, it could be a big relief if you follow my argument, I I think, I hope, yeah. I think it's, it is important to be aware and mindful of time and our time and how we do use it and using it well for us. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think, yeah, I think that, yes, some of these thoughts and concepts can be quite confronting <coughs> for a lot of people because it kind of brings into the groundingness of just life, the reality of the mortality and of just life and existence. Um, but then I think you follow it on with so much more positive and helpful, useful information as you read on in the book, which I loved. <laughs> and you tell pretty cool stories too, which just hooks me even more. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions for you, Oliver, if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. What is the watermelon problem? This is just my facetious name for uh, the problem of digital distraction and distraction more generally. I'm, I'm referencing a event in 2016 when... Um, I think it was 2016, when uh, BuzzFeed, the, the, the website, um, did a Facebook Live thing where two of their journalists put um, uh, elastic bands around a watermelon, one by one by one, squeezing the watermelon until um, uh, 600 and something rubber bands in, it uh, exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something really compelling about this. And millions of people, either live or shortly afterwards, um, uh, found they couldn't look away. And I just think it's a great illustration of a really important point about attention, right? Which is that none of those people decided, got up in the morning, is like, what I really want to do with 45 minutes of my day, because that was how long it took, is is like watch two people I don't know put rubber bands around a watermelon. Um, and even while they were doing it, if you read some of the Facebook comments, it was fascinating. People didn't really want to be doing it. 
but they also absolutely couldn't choose not to do it. And I think that this, um, it sort of, it just sort of speaks in a hopefully humorous way to this sort of duality of our minds whereby, you know, we can have all these grand intentions for how we want to use our, our time and then <clears throat> not actually have sufficient control of our focus and our attention um, to, um, uh, to, to, to put it onto those, to those things. And obviously a big part of this, um, as unpacked in part in the book, I can see over your shoulder, Johan Hari's stolen focus. And I write about this a little bit in the book is about how, um, there is a sort of corporate assault on, on our attention and attention is now the sort of, um, currency that, uh, ultimately makes money for the purveyors of all these supposedly free, uh, services online where you know as in the old saying if you if if you're not paying for the product uh you are the product um but really what i want to focus on more in the book is something else that i think is simultaneously true which is this weird way in which we kind of want to be distracted and we kind of collaborate in our own distraction sometimes when people talk about the war on our attention it it seems like you'd imagine i would be sitting there writing a chapter of my book and then like just like social media walks into the room and grabs me and pulls me away from this wonderful experience I was having. And I'm just like, no, no, I really want to be writing my book. I don't want to be uh, scrolling through my phone. Of course, that's not what happens. What happens is I encounter some difficulty or some sense of aggravation in my work. And then I'm like, I just really want to go and do something less challenging instead. So one of the things that I'm sort of unpacking and can talk about it more or not is, um, is why it should be that we have this sort of inner urge to, to not spend our time on, on what we claim to care about the most. I love how Johan spends two long chapters regarding the social media technological aspect of things and how our focus has been so, it's been literally stolen from big tech giants. They've psychologically gone in and yep. they do it in such a way that is so clever. It's, it's, so deceptive and it's genius at the same time and how they're able to draw your attention away from what you were doing. And then all of a sudden you, you lose 20 to 30 minutes of your time with mindless scrolling. They capture the things that really interest you the most. And like, I've had to incorporate a lot of the strategies that he's laid out in the book, which comes down to taking that control back for me mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to let the technology use me. I'm going to use it for a specific purpose and reason. Yep. Um, and then not allow my time to be used so much so on just mindless. I've got to like go in, be careful <laughs> uh, how much time I'm, I'm using. And then, yeah, I, I just think it's, as you're talking about the the whole aspect of our focus being being taken, it's a shame but we can get it back. And that's one of the things that I love how what you talk about and Johan at the same time, I think it's, it's brilliant and more people should be talking about it. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Glad it's useful. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you as well, like you, you do talk about mind wandering and are you a, a fan of mind wandering or not? Mind wandering. Mind wandering. Uh, what you mean as in letting your mind wander rather than yeah, trying to stay relentlessly focused on things? Yes. Letting your mind wander creatively, yeah. I guess. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I am a fan of it. And also I think like, 
I don't see any sign of it being something we, that isn't going to be a part of my life, even if I, even if I wanted it to be. So I think that, you know, even, sorry, I, I don't think I could eliminate it, even if I wanted to eliminate it. Um, I think there's a sort of, the, the terrain to navigate here is like, on the one hand, one of our limitations is our limited attention. And so you've got to steward it and you've got to be, you've got to find ways of being relatively firm with yourself about keeping focused on things. But another way in which we're limited is in the control that we have over our attention. And if you just go all in by on saying like, I'm going to focus relentlessly on the task at hand and never let my mind wander, again, you're sort of violating how you really, you're, you're sort of pushing against a built-in human limitation. And so I think it's no surprise that when you don't fight that limitation too aggressively and you do allow your mind to wander, like that, that's when great ideas occur and that's when interesting insights occur because guess what? We're made to function best with the apparatus that we've got rather than with this sort of uh, fantasy apparatus that we might one day develop of sort of total, total focus. So yeah, I'm, I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that mind wandering is a positive, is a positive thing. I think ultimately it just comes down to the having a sort of forgiving and gentle attitude towards the equipment that we're working with here in the human mind and the human body. Right, that it it needs to be it needs a certain amount of tough love and firmness when it comes to keeping focused on things, and it needs a certain amount of allowing it to do what it naturally does, which is to not focus. I don't even think there's anything wrong with spending time purely just scrolling through social media. If, um, if you can bring a certain amount of awareness to it, if you can step away from it roughly around the time when you wanted to, and you know, if you can, if you can maintain that sense of agency without sort of beating yourself up. Yeah. Always being kind to yourself, I guess, yeah. is the, the point. Yeah. Good point there. Yeah. Oliver, your your book is called Four Thousand Weeks: Time and How to Use It. People can go and get a copy wherever books are sold. The Australian, it'd be in paperback. Everywhere else, they're lucky they get the hardcover. Um, <laughs> but I'm so grateful for this book. Thank you so much for writing it. I highly encourage everyone to go and get a copy of it. Also, check out some of the other conversations that Oliver has done uh, in terms of podcasts. He's been on Dr. Rungan Chatterjee's podcast, which was brilliant, by the way. I'll link that for everyone in the show notes below to listen to. Grateful for your time today, Oliver. Two quick final questions for you. What do you love the most about yourself and your story? Gosh. Wow. That's not a quick question. Um, <laughs> Maybe it's a trick um, question. I tell you what I like. I really... Uh, I don't know. I think I... I like the place where I've got to in life and and a development of my personality compared to where I started out. I think I think I like the fact that that my life seems to move in the direction of growth rather than whatever the opposite of of growth is. I don't know if that's an insufficiently uh, precise answer to your question, but it's what occurs to me. That's all right. Maybe I might have to bring you back on when you've had more time to think about it. Kind of put you on, on the spot there. It's a big question, I know. <laughs> but uh, maybe this question might be another big one, but we'll see how we go. It, but it does have a relation to time, but it's a hypothetical one. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100 
all your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done and ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Uh, I would want it to say that I that I showed up for the people in my life and that I reached people beyond my sort of immediate circles with some messages that gave them a bit of permission to live more, more freely. I think, um, I'd like it to show that I didn't take myself too seriously, which is a risk for all of us. Um, and, and again, to go back to that question of, of sort of growth that, um, I, mentioned in the last answer, I think like to be a little bit of a support to other people growing into who they're meant to be. I think, you know, to think about being a parent as, as facilitating your kids development into who they're meant to be rather than trying to make them into something that whole kind of being a sort of being the soil, the sort of fertile soil for other people's growth would be a, a really fantastic thing to feel that one had done hmm i'm gonna stop there <laughs> no i like it it's uh something to leave everyone thinking about but oliver man thank you so much for your time today for teaching us more about time i really really did enjoy this conversation do please come back at any time <laughs> more more so many more things to uncover but thank you so much for joining me today on the storybox podcast thank you so much it's been a pleasure really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.